Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 28 to 31. But we want to put this in a bit more context, so let's begin back at verse 16 as we want to continue the flow of thought with Paul this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Join with me in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is written in our language that we might understand it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us to illuminate its truths that we might know it for sure. And so again this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word as you see fit in our lives and that we might be changed more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning I pray in your name. Amen. If you were to look at any modern psychological theory, they start with the idea that man is good. In fact, if you go through almost any religion, it starts with the idea that man is basically good. And so man doesn't need God, or or he can at least be good enough for God if he works his way towards God, because man is basically good by nature. Now, if we were to look around the world, we might think that maybe that's a little optimistic. Because though in spite there have been claims that man has evolved into a better moral being and he's better than he's ever been, there seems very little evidence of that. If we were just to scan down the 19th century and we were to look 
at some of the events that took place since since the enlightenment and since a worldview that came that sat God apart we would see a landscape filled with wars and death it's estimated that at least 30 million people died during World War One over 45 million died in World War Two but those were just the big wars. Then there was Vietnam and there was Korea and there was every single nation, it seems, was fighting somewhere. There was genocide in Rwanda and Uganda. It continues on and on. The Russians, the communists took over in Russia as it's estimated that they, they, they killed anywhere between 30 to 100 million people. China, right? Again, communists, putting God aside, putting God out, the people for, you know, the, the government for the people killed how many millions and millions and millions of people? Estimated over 50 million people in China alone were put to death by their government. A government that said there is no God. And so it would seem that though man claims there is no God and claims that God is, is unnecessary and that man is basically good, the evidence is completely to the contrary. Now we as believers shouldn't be shocked. In fact, that's exactly what Romans chapter one is telling us. Outside of God, man cannot be good. Man is basically what? Evil, he is fallen and all good comes from God. God is just, God is right, God is holy and only in relationship to him and obedience to him and empowered by him can man actually be good. And so man is not good. He actually needs help. And that's why Paul starts here in Romans 1.16 and he starts with this good news. Guess what? The, there's the gospel of God that gives you a righteousness through faith that comes not from what you do, but from God. It, there's, there's good news here. You can't earn it. You can't do it yourself. But it simply comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work on the cross. Now, Paul wants to make sure that we recognize the reason this is good news and we need this good news, and it's not just from the clippings in the newspaper, but he tells us there's, this is good news and necessary because he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. In other words, there's a problem, Houston. Everyone is under the wrath of God and it is a present wrath. It's a wrath of abandonment. It's not an eschatological wrath here, but it is a present day wrath where God abandons people to their sin. And three times within this text, Paul says God gave them over. He gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over to lust in their heart to impurity. He gave them over to, first of all, sexual sin. He abandoned them to to their desires. And so the acceptance of sexual sin in our culture is actually evidence of what God's abandoning individuals and the culture as a whole. Secondly, he said, God gave them over to degrading passions. He's speaking here in, in chapter one specifically of those pagans or, or people who do not worship the true God, who do not even identify him, but worship other gods or other things. And he said he gave them over to what? To degrading passions. And those degrading passions, he says, is homosexuality. This is the expression that he says of these degrading passions. And every pagan society outside of really of Islam has accepted this as part of society. And he says the acceptance and culture and society of this is actually a sign not of being modern, not of being inclusive, 
but actually a sign of God's wrath of abandonment. Now today we discover a third way that pagans experience God's wrath of abandonment and that he's abandoned them to a depraved mind, a depraved mind. We see this in these verses 28 to 32. Now, Paul is going to really show us, we're going to look at three things this morning about the depraved mind. We're going to see the reason for the depraved mind, the punishment of the depraved mind, and the consequences of the depraved mind. Now, first of all, the reason for the depraved mind. He begins by explaining the reason behind it. And he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now this expression, just as, gives a correlate of relationships here. And he's saying, just as they abandoned God in their knowledge, God, what, gave them over to a, a mind that is depraved. In other words, it's like sitting on a teeter-totter. If you sit on one end, what happens to the other end? Well, I guess it depends who's on the other end, but let's pretend it's empty, right? <clears throat> And so he says there's a natural correlation between God's wrath of abandonment and sin. You, you sin, you sit on this side of the teeter-totter, boom, just expect the other side's going up. God's wrath of abandonment will come. It's in relationship to exactly what you do. You sit on the, on the teeter-totter, it goes up. You sin, God's wrath is going to come. His retribution will come. Now, the clause in our text here is, is translated, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now, that sounds pretty bad. All right, that sounds pretty bad. But it's worse, if we, if we take a literal reading of the Greek here, it sounds even worse. And I want you to listen to this. They did not approve of God to have in their knowledge or to have in knowledge. They did not approve of God to have in their knowledge. In other words, they sifted. They sifted and they thought and they took the, and they went about and they thought and they said, is God worth it? And ultimately they said, he's unworthy. He's unworthy to have in my knowledge. They didn't approve. They didn't want his ideas in, his, in their mind. This word here really is, 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 is a strong word for knowledge. And the idea is that it is an experiential knowledge. And they said, we've understood something about God, but we simply do not want to know him experientially. We will not honor him and we will not give thanks. We refuse to do that. We will not acknowledge him. He's not worth being in our minds. They just didn't think that any knowledge of God was worth being worth that they had discovered in creation or and the things they had learned about God to be true, to be worth keeping. Now that does not mean that every single arrives at some crisis point in his life where he comes to a crisis point in his life and just goes, well, you know what? I've, I've added it all up after all of these years and I reject it. But the idea here is he either looks at the evidence and rejects it and consciously decides to go against it, or he may simply never recognize the true God. He looks at the evidence intentionally and he overlooks that evidence and simply because he wants to embrace false gods. In other words, he's so busy going towards his idol and the things that he desires, he simply will not give thought to it. And in that, he doesn't see God being fit. And so he wants to embrace false gods. And so the reason the depraved mind is, is because the pagan simply does not think that having the knowledge of God and doing what is necessary with that knowledge is worthwhile. And he simply rejects it. He does not want God in his mind. Now, secondly, that leads us not only the reason for the depraved mind, but the punishment of the depraved mind. Now, Paul describes for us here the punishment of the depraved mind. Notice verse 28. 
and they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. There, there's the reason. Here's the punishment. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, we remember that gave over here is not just that God is releasing, stepping back and giving his hands, but he's making a judicial decision that he will hand them over to their sin and that they will therefore face the consequences of their sin. God is active in this. As one writer said, it's, he, he lifts his restraining hand and prevents, gives them a little push. Okay, it's the idea that he decides, okay, this is what you want. I make the decision to withdraw. Now, having said that, that does not make God responsible for their sin. God is simply allowing their sinful nature to take its course. Now, there's a word play in verse 28 in the original, and, and it's not in all of our English translations capture it, including the New American Standard. So let me read it in such a way that you get the wordplay. Wordplay, it says here, just as sinners tested God and rejected him, so God gave them over to minds that were tested and found faults. All right? Or we could read it this way. They did not approve God, so God gave them over to a what? A disapproved mind. That's the idea. They didn't approve God, and therefore God gave them over to a disapproved mind. God now does not approve of their mind. So God gives a sinner over to unapproved mind. What does that mean? It means that their minds became quite unable to make trustworthy moral judgments. Douglas Moo puts it this way, people who have turned from God are fundamentally unable to think and decide correctly about God and his will. Only the work of the spirit in renewing the mind can overcome the deep-seated blindness and perversity. Only the work of what? The Holy Spirit. This is why it's necessary for God to be sovereign in salvation. Man is blinded and given over to his depraved mind. And again, the idea of a depraved is that of standing the test. The term was commonly used of metals that were rejected by refiners because of impurities. Impure metals were discarded and depraved, therefore came to be, include the idea of worthless and useless. And God says, I've given you over to a useless mind for anything of spiritual value. Your mind is worthless and useless. So they become spiritually depraved, worthless, and useless. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah as he speaks of the unbeliever. He says this, they called them rejected silver. Isn't that interesting? He calls them rejected silver because the Lord has what? Rejected them. They rejected God. They refuse what they knew. God calls them what? Rejected silver. They are depraved. The mind that finds God worthless becomes what? Worthless itself. It's debauched. It's deceived. And deserving only what? Divine wrath. So Paul says, here's the reason they wouldn't acknowledge him. Here's the punishment, the depraved mind. And now he moves on here in verse 29, or the end of verse 28 and into 29 and 30 and 31, the consequences of the depraved mind. So Paul explains the consequences of the, de of the depraved mind. And he begins by giving us a summary of the consequences. Look at verse 28. God gave them over to the depraved mind, and the consequence of, of that is to do those things that are not proper. You can see that when a person can't understand and approve God's will, the result is that he will begin to do what Paul calls here, to do the things which are what? Not proper. Now this is a technical expression 
among the Greeks to describe actions that were morally wrong. There was the idea, just in, in, in a figurative expression, of doing what is contrary and opposite, namely to the light of reason, the reflections of prudence, and the dictates of conscience. In other words, it was, it was against everything that man was created to be and everything that he should be doing. He says, this is what they are now doing. They now practice them. Now we want to make it clear, it's not that they forget or can't remember everything about God because God has placed a conscience in them, but they simply refuse to know to do what they should. In fact, verse 32, if we look, we'll look at this next week, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, and yet they continue to practice them. So they don't lose all senses right and wrong. They don't lose everything. But they simply choose to do what is wrong in spite of what they know to be right and wrong. As one theologian has said, sin has put it sin, that, it, that is more sin, is the penalty for sin. The worst penalty for sin is to what? Of sin is to love sin. So I've given the summary of the consequences of the depraved mind. He, he, they begin to do those things which are not proper. Paul now gives us an illustration and he gives us 21 examples of what he means by things that are not proper. We read in verse 29 to 31, he says, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, they are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's quite a list. It's quite a list. And Paul is making this list here and he is trying to demonstrate just how the breadth of this depravity. He wants, he's just throwing out everything in, like in the kitchen sink here, as it were, to show you the breadth of this depravity. Now, there's a couple of things we want to do before we go through this list, and, and we're going to try to, to define some of these. But first of all, we need to understand that this list is not comprehensive. Now, it seems pretty comprehensive, but it's not. If we look through Scripture, there's at least 15 lists of vices in Scripture. And Paul is here not trying to be comprehensive. He's just trying to show you the breadth. And we would say there are many, many, many more vices that men fall into. As we go to define these, we also want to recognize that many of these terms are very close. They overlap a lot and are hard to distinguish as we look at them. But Paul put them all in one list and he chose to put them all on the list under the Holy Spirit. And so we will do our best to try to make some nuances between them so that we get a better understanding of them. But I will suggest to you that after we're done, you're going to have to go study yourself. And you might have to re-listen to this and then go and study again. So it, 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 it's not easy. Third, I want you to notice about this list, and, and this is very, very interesting. In the first list, he really was dealing with sexual sins, right? He dealt, he dealt with to sexual sins and homosexuality in the area of sexuality. But here, he's dealing with non-sexual sins that deal with and destroy relationships. Sins that destroy relationships. Now that's interesting that he deals with these sins that are on a horizontal level, sins that create dis cord and disharmony between people. As one author put it, these antisocial practices which together describe the breakdown of, which together describe the breakdown of the human com community, uh, that's what separates. Sin separates us. 
And he says, this breaks down community. These sins break down community. And so we recognize, we often think of sin separating us, first of all, if you're an unbeliever from God. We think of sin separating ourselves from God in, in our fellowship. But sin by its nature is also sows discord in relationships. And the more sinful a society comes, the more idolatrous a society comes, becomes, the more it separates. The more society becomes fragmented and you go into societies and the more sinful they are, the more the people are afraid of one another, the less they work together, the more society breaks down and decays. So it should be no surprise to see our society following that exact pattern. The more sin is practiced, the more it separates. Now, Paul has a, sip, a simple structure here, and we're just going to follow it. Um, and so as, as we go through this list, I wouldn't say that he's listed it in, in, in the neatest way that I would like. I would like five points in a poem. But he does list it in areas here, and so we'll take a look. So the first part of this list is... The, is listed with the participle being filled, followed by four nouns. You look at verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Now what unites these words is that they are all general words for evil. They're not a specific word among them. They're general words. Notice he introduces this with the word being filled. Being filled with it makes it clear that the pagans don't pursue sin half-heartedly. It's, it's not that these are rare. Instead, these sins permeate their hearts and lives. We could say this. This is like being filled with the Spirit, except they're being filled with what? Sin. They are absolutely controlled by these evils. Now, as I mentioned, it's hard to make distinctions, but we will do our best to nuance these. First of all, there is unrighteousness. We met this verse back in verse 18. For the, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It really speaks of violating the law, a departure from the standard, and so not fulfilling God's law. It's, it's a nonconformity to God's law in our thoughts, our words, our actions, we simply do not conform to God's law. Now you'll notice this little word being filled with all, the word all, means unrighteousness at every level. There's not some parts of you that are okay, some parts that aren't unrighteous, not part of you that is not, shall we say, disobedient to the law. It permeates every part of you. Then Paul says the idea of wickedness. Now, some of you I know right now are probably writing as fast as you can, but you you may have to listen. You may have to put down your pens a little bit today and and listen to this at home. We we're trying to get up the numbers on on the internet from two, <laughs> so we devised this plan today. But no, but. It, it may be quicker than you would like. Paul says wickedness. Uh, wickedness is a state or a condition of lacking moral values. And it, it, it really has the idea of applauding evil, scheming to do what is wicked, and then carrying it out. It initiates the plot and then ultimately does this. And it takes joy in it. It likes to be cruel. It's callously cruel. It's not inadvertently cruel. It actually plans it, takes joy in it, and carries it out. And so that, that is w wickedness. It's a destructive badness, you could say. 
It describes a man who not only wants to make everyone, uh, who wants to make everyone as bad as himself. Distracts the goodness of people. It was actually used of someone, of, of a woman who, would, in Greek, who would, who would try to seduce a man because he was innocent. She couldn't stand the fact that he was innocent, and so there was this malicious attempt to go after him. So Paul says they are full of wickedness, deliberately evil, and they carry out these corrupt acts to inflict injury. Then he talks about greed. Greed. We understand that word. It's a settled disposition that is driven to have more. It's reckless selfishness that pursues one's own desires regardless of how it will affect others. And regardless of what he has, the greedy person is never satisfied. He still must have more. There's a total lack of contentment with what, you ha- what they have. And no matter where they are in society, they are restless to grab more of the world. They always must have more. The Greeks actually said this was the accursed love of having. The accursed love of having. It pursues its own interests with complete disregard for the rights of others or even the considerations of common humanity. It is just greed. It just wants more. It's a desire for money that leads to theft. It's a desire for prestige that leads to an evil ambition. It is a desire for power that leads to sadistic tyranny. This is this greed, this overwhelming desire for more. The last word in, the, in this word group is the word evil, the word evil. Now, this word here denotes moral evil and corruption in general, especially in regard to intent. So wickedness has more the idea of actually carrying it out. This is maybe more to do with the motivations behind the carrying it out. It could be this, it's, it's especially in regard to intent, could be translated mean-spirited. It refers to an internal vicious disposition that actually finds pleasure in hurting others. And so there's this internal desire, this internal inferno, as it were. It pertains, it pertains to the sin that is deliberate and determined. It may reside in the heart for a long time for being be, before being expressed outwardly. And it may, in fact, never be expressed outwardly. Therefore, it includes the many hidden sins that only the Lord and that individual are aware of. So it has more of a, an inward, this is that inward desire. It may not even express itself, but the intents are there. Paul says the unbelieving pagans are filled with these general expressions of evil. Well, there's the first four. (laughs) 17 more to go. Now that brings us to the second part of Paul's structure here. And he gives us the word full of, followed by five nouns. Look together again at verse 29. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. What unites these words? These words describe envy and its consequences. So this is really about the sin of envy and how it expresses itself. Now notice again, full of. It means that sin permeates the pagan's life. This is its character. It's like pouring into a cup and it's pouring over the top. It's full and it's pouring over. This is characteristic of who they are. They're thoroughly characterized by these behaviors. So he says, what is envy? 
Envy is, is the displeasure or even the anger that comes from seeing someone else have what you want, right? So it's not just that you want what somebody else has, but you are angry that they're successful. You're angry that they've attained something. If you can't have it, you don't want them to have it. There's nothing worse than you not succeeding is someone else succeeding, right? We just can't have that. You just notice that at work, right? Somebody gets promoted and everybody's happy, right? Everybody's happy, right? Why did he get promoted? I do better work than him, right? That's not fair. All of us could have got, got that job, right? People are not happy. So he said they are full of envy. They don't want anybody else to have success. They don't want anybody else to have anything. This is why sinners have a hard time getting along with one another, right? They're not even happy when, you know, things float all boats. They want their boat just to float a little higher, <clears throat> a little higher. Now, the second word in this group is murder, murder. That might surprise you, but murder, as you know, is taking a life of another. Scriptures allows the taking of a life in war, self-defense, and capital punishment. But all other taking of life is called murder and is sin against God. It's a destruction of God's image in another person. Now notice that murder is connected with envy. Why? They don't seem to connect. They connect amazingly well, however, because murder is often the direct result of what? Envy. Why should you have that? I want that. And I'll kill you to get it. Go back to the first murder recorded in scripture. Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Because he was envious of the response that, God, that he got to his sacrifice from God. What was Joseph's, what about Joseph's brothers? How did they treat him? Oh, we love your, we love your dreams. We love your, go, your multicolored coat, Joseph. We're just happy for you. Is that what happened? No, they sold him into slavery, put him in a pit. Why was Jesus delivered over? Why did the Pharisees deliver Jesus over? Because of envy. They had him crucified and killed, why? Because they were envious of his teaching, envious of his following. So envy often lies behind murder. Murder is often driven by envy. The third word in this group is the word strife refers to arguments and conflicts, arguments and conflicts that spring from an argumentative, contentious spirit. These are people, there are people, and there are homes that this con they are, are constantly filled with arguments and fighting and conflict. Paul says strife is something God ab abandons the pagan to. Arguing, quarreling, bickering. Such a person will fight anyone to achieve what they want, right? I will fight, I will do whatever I can. Maybe I won't murder you, but I'll cause strife because I'll go after you because I want what you have. Then there's the word deceit. This word has an interesting background. It comes from the word 
for baiting a f uh, in a fish. When you uh, take out your, your lure and you throw your hook in there, right? You're trying to get that fish to think that that's a piece of food and that you're trying to bait him in, you're trying to get him in. So you use deceit to catch that person, to deceive him. Ultimately then, it is used to refer to the seat used to mislead someone for your own advantage. One leading lexicon defines it as taking advantage of others through underhanded methods. Taking advantage by underhanded methods. How often do you see that? Well, and you get one thing for your TV preachers, but even within businesses and advertising, right? Underhanded methods in order to, to bring you in. People are quick to lie and deceive for their own advantage. Make themselves look better than they are. And then the word malice. Malice refers to a basic character defect that leads someone to be hurtful to others. It is hating and despising others so that you intentionally sin against them in order to spite them, in order to hurt them. In the original, uh, when resolved into its components, literally signifies bad customer disposition, yet generally signifies something more specific. Uh, uh, rendering, you could render this uh, malignity, m malignity, which is a desire to hurt others without any reason other than doing evil. It's finding pleasure in suffering. There's just a, a, a hurt, hurtful desire to help other, to hurt others, to be malicious against them. Now, you just looked at those nine sins we've already looked at. Those sins ravish and destroy relationships. They simply ravish and destroy relationships. If you're in the midst of deceit and strife and envy and malice, and certainly murder would end your relationship, right? You can see how these begin to destroy relationships between others. And as these grow, you can see how all relationships break down in society. Now that brings us to the third part of Paul's vice list here. And it's simply a list of 12 sins. Now, although it's primary a laundry list of sins, there are some discernible clues here as to the structure. <clears throat> Paul gives this list of 12 sins with two sins of speech, which people try to destroy the reputation of others. Notice in verse 29, he, he says they are what? Gossips. This word literally means whisperers, whisperers. This is someone who goes around and tells harmful things about people, but he does it quietly behind the person's back. <clears throat> he just whispers, hey, I got a prayer request for you. Or hey, <clears throat> have you heard this? And then they tell something that could be true or could be false in order to bring that person down and harm their reputation. They want to advance their own cause at another person's expense. And so they do it not so much in low, a low volume of voice, but privately is the idea. <clears throat> they come alongside and, and give these private speeches to bring a person down, to harm their reputation. And then he says in verse 30, slanderers. On the other hand, these are those who speak evil of others, but not secretly, but openly. They want you to know, and they're happy to broadcast to whoever in front of you, everywhere, happy to say bad things about you. They let you know what they think. And they, uh, they slander you with, at every opportunity, at every turn. They know what's happening. And so the idea here is that they, they will just do it publicly. Now, in some ways, this is a little bit less than the gossip because at least you know it's coming, right? 
the gossip's doing it behind your back and, and secretly, at least the slanderer's doing it to your face. But again, you can see how all of these are going back to the person. Do you notice that? This, all of these exalt the person who's doing them. They're all about the person who's doing that. Now remember we said at, God is giving the people over because of their what? Idolatry. They are idolatry. And we said at the center of idolatry is what? Self-worship. Self-worship. So it should be no surprise that these sins are all about what? Self. All about self. No wonder they're destructive in relationships because how can you be thinking of others if you're thinking about you? Now the next line is a list of 12 sins. Paul moves from sins of speech to six sins related to pride. Now notice the first. He says they are haters of God. Haters of God. This is the most egregious expression of pride. It is openly and willingly and defiantly rejecting your creator and rejecting God and saying, I will not recognize him. I will not have him over me. I despise him. I will not have my creator over top of him. I will not bow my pride to him. This is a man who hates God. He knows and he's defying him. God is the barrier between him and his pleasures, between him and self-rule, and he simply will not allow him, uh, allow God to rule in his life. He will gladly eliminate God, for to him God, a godless world would be one where he would have liberty and license to do as he pleases. And so he literally despises God because he will not have him rule over him. The next word on this list to do with pride is insolent. This focuses really on the uh, actions of pride. This is a person who doesn't simply feel pride inside. This is a person who acts out his pride by treating everyone as, as if they were below them, right? We've probably met someone like that. Hopefully we're not that person, right? Someone who just thinks they're better than everybody else. They just think that everyone else just got the short end of the stick when it came to brains, social skills, etc. They, they think that they're the king and you're the slave. You're a peon to advance their cause. Hendricks says they treat others with contempt as if they, they alone amount to anything and all others amount to nothing. Right? I'm the best. Then there's the arrogant. Arrogant focus on thoughts of superiority. Okay? The arrogant person may come across as the most humble person who acts out his pride by treating everyone else. No, uh, in the, he might be the most humble person in the world. They may never act it out, but in their mind, the arrogant person truly believes that no one is equal. He looks around and surveys the landscape and says to the rest of these people, the rest of these peoples are, are stupid. I'm smart. Right? There's a tendency, I think, in the human heart to do that often, e even often without evidence. I just wish they'd get out of the way, let me do it. I know how it's done, I'm the smart one, right? It might not always be expressed outside, but the thoughts are there. And the thing with this one, you can be arrogant and come across as shy and humble, right? Let's just examine that for a minute. Why are people shy? Is it because they're humble? It's not. It's because they're proud. 
I'm afraid what other people will think. I don't want people to, to, to look down on me, right? Shyness does not come out of humility. It comes out of pride. And people can go around and pretend to be humble and still have these thoughts of superiority in their mind. Next word is boastful. Focuses on the words of the proud person, right? This guy we, we tend to know. This guy, this uh, word originally described those who travel from town to town selling their portions and their snake oil and making these extravagant, unverifiable claims. Eventually, therefore, the word came to speak of claiming t- to have done things that you never did. Just this week, of course, <coughs> we, uh, we, sorry, we see much of this every week. Can also be, this word can also refer to constantly bragging about genuine accomplishments as well. So this is the person who tends to talk about themselves, what I did, right? And so we have the, we have the Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest of all time, look at me, look at me, right? We also have the humble brag. Sure, sure glad I was able to save the day, you know, <laughs> right? Just, just, I was just fortunate enough to be the only one in the world who could fix that problem, and I just happened to be there. Wow, just really happy about that, right? The humble brag, right? We find ways to fit it in, right? We find, and people find ways to do that. They're either bragging about their accomplishments or pretending that they're not. So people, both will people try to impress others, uh, constantly rehearsing their accomplishments, trying to, to continually in their speech boast about who they are and what they do and try to impress you by bragging. Then there comes inventors of evil. This is another expression of pride. Here are people who aren't content with the status quo of expressions of evil. They've got to go beyond. As one commentator puts it, this refers to those who discover and invent more, invent even more hateful methods of hurting and destroying their fellow man. They're inventors of evil. They're not content with ordinary expressions of evil. They've got to find more. There's this news article about an angry husband who rented a bulldozer and while his wife was at work, he bulldozed her home to the foundation with all her belongings. That's creative, right? Hey, I'm angry, I'll, f- I'll find a way to do something evil, right? Probably forgot that he was paying the mortgage, but anyway. <laughs> and then he says disobedient to parents, disobedience to parents. Now, you would think this wouldn't be an expression of pride, but it is. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul links disobedience to parents with pride. When a child is disrespectful and disobedience to his parents, what is happening in that moment is the child has concluded he is superior to his parents. I know better than mom and dad. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who knows what's right. You need to listen to me. We often say that's reverse parenting. When the child's in charge, that means he's the parent, right? But it's an expression of pride. It's not an independent spirit. It's not them learning to make decisions. It's them expressing their pride. I know better than you, mom and dad. I know God put you in charge of me and God told me to obey you and God told me that you were the one to guide me into the truth. But guess what? I know better. 
And if you do not teach your children to be obedient and honor your parents and obey them, you are teaching them that you don't have to what? Honor and obey God. Because you are the example to them to teach them about God himself. Because God is what? The ultimate authority. Now the final four words in this list of 12 sins share only one thing in common. Now it's not something that you would think of or even know, but they are four positive words all with a a negative prefix in front of them. Uh, So, all all they're doing, right? So you have a theist to someone who believes in God, you have a atheist who doesn't believe in God. And each one of these have that alpha primitive in front of them to negate them. Verse 31 then says, without understanding. It it describes a person who lacks all moral discernment. He has no moral sense. He has no clear moral compass. He's willing over, he is willing over what he knows in his heart. He will simply has no moral discernment. They are without intelligent thought concerning God or morality. This renders them incapable of any decision making. They have no comprehension of who God is, what is moral law, or what any common decency is. They do not understand the truth of God, even at the most basic level. Their consciences are seared with a hot iron. Right and wrong are indistinguishable to them. He is willing to call good evil and evil good. He is without understanding. He is morally stupid, one writer says. Secondly, he says they are untrustworthy. This literally means covenant breaking. It describes those who uh, don't keep their word, don't keep their promises, don't keep their agreements, don't keep, keep the covenants that they make. These people are, uh, who are guilty of the sin are completely comfortable in this. They make agreements and break them because it's not convenient for them. We see this every day. We see the promises made that are broken. We see the marriage vows that are destroyed, the business contracts that aren't worth the paper that they're written on. Even treaties between countries where they deceive one another. These people are without principle doing whatever is most expedient to fill their own selfish desires. They are simply untrustworthy. Their word means nothing. Notice again, The next word in verse 31, unloving. Unloving. This is the third word. The root of this word unloving in Greek, storge, which is different from the different kind of Greek in love. It describes a natural love between family members. It's a natural affection. Some translations even express it this way. They are without what? Natural affections. So one who is loving lacks the affection that is normal among family members. Simply, there is no, there's a natural love that God has given us for our family members. This is why we actually even love each other in the church because we're in the family of God. But there's a natural affection between children and parents, sometimes between siblings, right? But there's a natural affection in family, right? Most of the time we're willing to fight with our siblings till someone else comes along, right? And then we we protect the one we're beating up. So, but there's no natural affection. In fact, this would be the sin behind the Romans practice of infanticide, right? They thought that it was natural for you to kill your deformed baby. It was just something that a good person did. 
Now, before we get on the Romans too far, this is tragically demonstrated in our culture today, is it not? Through abortion. A tragic lack of a natural affection, unloving. It's sad when sin gets that far. And where our children used to be the safest, they're now being ripped out, right? And then the final word in this, in the 21st word, is simply the word unmerciful. It means lacking all pity and compassion, ruthless. We've seen this demonstrated in our day many times, the terrorist attack, the celebrations, not just that they commit the acts, but they, they, they celebrate the acts. They act as if the horrific crimes that they commit are good. Instead of seeing pity for their victim, they take joy in their destruction. Now it's interesting we sometimes are stunned by these atrocities, but there's another side to this, and that's not just that we perpetrate, that, that these crimes are perpetrated, but we see these crimes being perpetrated and we stand back and watch. We have, ap- there's an apathy that comes. We saw that with the story of the Good Samaritan, didn't we? They went on by. And there can be a sense of being unmerciful where we simply are refusing to help those who are in need, those who are in trouble, who are unrefused to get involved to help the victim. That's being unmerciful. Now, that's 21. 21 vices. That's not all of them, but we're going to stop. This is all in, the, in, this, in this passage. All of them demonstrate idolatry. All of them demonstrate self-worship. This is what I want. And all of them ultimately destroy relationships with others. And as we slip into more idolatry, as we slip into more sin, God is going to continue to what? Abandon our culture, abandon our nation, and abandon the individuals in it to their sin. The only hope for this is what? Revival. The Holy Spirit. Regeneration. This is what turns this around. Now, this morning, if you're an unbeliever and you look at this list, you might look at this and recognize that many of these things are part of your life. They're a regular part of your life. But as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, those who practice these things will not see what? The kingdom of God. You are under the wrath of God and he will continue to abandon you to your sin unless you turn and ultimately you will face the wrath of God in an eschatological wrath when Christ returns, judges you and throws you into hell. And if you practice these things, I don't care how many professions you made, I don't know how many times you signed a card, how many times you walked forward, so not how many times you recommitted your life. If this is who you are, you're not a believer. Don't take any comfort in any of your professions. Recognize that no one who practices these things is what? Going to see the kingdom of God, Ephesians chapter five. Now, if you're a believer today, you see these sins, you recognize that these are sins of what? Pagans, of unbelievers. They're not to be part of your life. That's why Paul said, don't let sin, what, reign in your mortal bodies. 
Don't let sin reign in your boredom. You must not give license to these sins in your life. You must examine your life. You must see these things and you must what? Eradicate them. You must ask the Holy Spirit to give you, to change you, to give you the fruits of the Spirit and to remove them. Now we recognize that these sins are part of our lives from time to time as believers, right? But this is what we've been saved from. And we recognize we're not perfect this side of heaven. But one thing that it should do is drive us to our knees in gratitude for what he has done for us and to recognize that we live the Christian life not because we're awesome, not because we have great abilities, but because of the grace of God. And we live in grace. Take joy that we walk in the grace of God. So today, let's walk in that grace. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We are again reminded of your hatred of sin and that you not only hate sin, but you also hate the sinner and that you will throw the sinner into hell. And I pray that we would never take sin lightly in our lives and we would recognize the danger that our un the unsaved are in and that we would share the gospel and that you would be merciful and recognizing it takes a work of the spirit for this to be turned around. And so at that point, we just give you all praise and honor for salvation and the glory that you so richly deserve. In your name, amen.